Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. On the last episode, we talked about the aesthetics of the deep sea and we sort of tried to pick apart our emotional responses to, to these animals and to the deep sea as an environment. Uh, and we sort of started to touch upon something going on under the surface in, in us, in us as observers of the deep sea, a reluctance, uh, a fear, something sort of lingering that influences how we view the deep sea. So I think we need to flip this. I think we need to no longer have the deep sea as a subject, but have the deep sea as almost the stimulus and turn humanity into the subject. Why, why do we feel this way? about the deep sea as a whole. Who can we talk to about that? We know a guy. Where do you start with a guy like this? He's uh, quite a colourful character in terms of his successes in life. The guy's called Dr. Glenn Singleman, and he's famous for being a wingsuit pilot, a skydiver, base jumper, mountain climber. He's a motivational speaker, he's a documentary maker, a media commentator, he's an expedition doctor, and his day job is a physician in the intensive care unit in the Sydney Adventist Hospital in Australia. Glenn joins us now from his house in Sydney. How are you, Glenn? Fantastic, Alan. How's yourself? Good. I'd like to start this chat with how the media always portrays the deep sea and deep sea animals as aliens and monsters. And, and you just casually dropped in, oh, yeah, yeah, it's because the deep sea represents the human subconscious, as if that was like an obvious thing to know about. Can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that? To, to start the explanation of this, you need to understand a little bit about analytical psychology or Jungian psychology and his symbolism. And in particular, Jung and Freud, and they talked about our psyche being split between the conscious or the, the day-to-day stuff and then the unconscious, the Freud called it the id. And the unconscious is where all of our dark motivations, the animal side of our nature, if you like, the selfish dark bit of all of our psyche, which we all know is there, but we all want to repress that because we don't like to be seen that way. So we put a lot of psychic energy into dampening down or controlling those dark id, if you like, forces, and we repress them. And this repression comes at a a certain psychic cost, and there are symbols that represent the different parts of our psyche. And one of the traditional symbols that represents the unconscious is the ocean. And people who in dreams dive into the ocean, it's a metaphor for diving into the unconscious part of the mind. And of course, most people fear diving into the ocean because you drown. As we fear the dark aspects of our personality, so we fear the deep. In fact, if you look at most mythologies of ancient and present cultures, most mythologies have some dark, deep-sea monster that comes up to the surface and pulls people down to their doom, you know, the the Cthulhu, the, the Jonah and the whale myth, a symbolic representation of our own fear of the dark side of our personalities. And the unfortunate sequelae of that is that deep sea research is feared as people fear their own unconscious, so they fear 
the deep ocean. And so the idea of going to the deep sea in a, you know, submersible is something that inspires fear in most people because it's symbolically linked with diving into that bit of the personality that you really don't want to know about. And so we were talking, Alan, about how I believe that has led to deep ocean research being underfunded because people don't understand that they actually have this subconscious fear of the deep. And that affects our decision-making in our conscious lives, as many subconscious drives do. It's funny because we were speaking to the likes of, of Don Walsh and I remember him saying it's been something like 60 years of people asking him about his, his challenge of deep dive. Was it scary or was it dangerous? And you must get similar things when you when you talk about your, your, your base jumping and your wingsuit piloting and so on. Do you think that's because people are genuinely worried about your safety or is it because they like the idea that it's scary and dangerous the same reason why people pay to watch a horror film is actually a sort of form of entertainment it makes a better story so i've always believed that physical exploration is really a metaphor for an internal journey and i always think the most interesting expeditions that i've ever been on have made me think about the, my own internal space. It made me explore parts of myself that I didn't really know were there, dimensions of my own psyche that I just wasn't aware of. And so when I go, you know, base jumping or jumping out of a plane in a wingsuit or doing any of those things that push me into a state of hyper-awareness, hyper-alertness, what the psychologist 6M Mihai calls flow or other people call the zone, the psychologist Maslow called these peak experiences, extreme sport is a rapid way into these peak performance states. And I think likewise, going on expeditions to weird, remote, untraveled places, that's a metaphor or a reminder or a opens the possibility of, well, what are the weird, unknown, untraveled, unexplored parts of myself? And that, to me, is why exploration is truly addictive. And I think if you read the journals of all the classic explorers, while they love to talk about how, yes, we're filling in a blank on the map and we're doing it for science, they weren't doing it for science at all. They were personally motivated by going into the zone. Sure, they were discovering parts of geography, but they were discovering bits of their own psyche. And so I guess I'm exploring a different realm now, you know, not only with skydiving and wingsuiting, but, you know, I also go mountaineering and go on the expeditions like we've been on together, Alan. Like I said, to me, these remote unknown environments are a way that I can transition into those remote unknown parts of myself and really go on a, you know, a, <laughs> I hesitate to use the word deep dive, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, you obviously work on the psychology of this and trying to convince people that you can face these fears and you can overcome it. And, and, and I remember watching you give a presentation on this about how there's no amount of fear is, isn't something that can be overcome. But how then do we deal with that in a deep sea environment where 
this sort of archetypal global resistance, if you like, to deepest, darkest fears and deepest, darkest waters and so on. How do you reverse that trend? Is this something like the fear of flying that no matter how much you show people, there will always be a sort of kickback in that, you know, it's not something you can just cure. But with all these different things that are going on just now, like sort of wave of submersible dives and, and obviously we're bringing back sort of HD, 4K, beautifully illuminated videos from the deep sea to show that it's not a scary place. There are no monsters there. Just because it's far from the surface doesn't mean it's dangerous and so on. Do you think that's going to help this? Do you think there'll ever be a time where the sea is just the sea? Actually, I do, Alan, because technology got us over our fear of, of flying because we use aircraft now and there are at any given time thousands of aircraft in the sky at any given moment. If you look back through history, the fear of flying was rightly associated with death. Few Chinese emperors, the ones who were testing the first parachutes, threw a lot of prisoners off cliffs. But we've overcome that with technology and similarly I think we'll overcome that fear of the deep with technology when the new Triton submersible, the LF, the limiting factor, it's a vehicle that is now commercially rated to go to any part of the seafloor. So when these kinds of vehicles become more commonplace and people are able to experience for themselves the wonder of going into this incredible environment that they'd never experienced before, then I think, you know, I think deep sea ocean research will really open up because we'll have the technology, but the technology will, uh, I mean, dissipate people's unconscious fear just as it has done with aircraft. Uh, I suspect that the new Triton vehicle will be the herald of uh, a whole new era of not only deep ocean exploration, but also deep ocean tourism. That's going to change. I'm hoping, I believe, that will change very rapidly into the future. I always think the best thing we should be is erase that imaginary line between shallow and deep and just call it the sea. That's a sort of psychological line in the sand. I mean, you wouldn't have a, a situation whereby you are at the, the edge of a rainforest and say, right, guys, we're going to study the first 100 metres of this rainforest. Anything after that? Nah, it's too scary. Where it's too deep. We're, not going, we're not going that deep into the rainforest. Let's just ignore the other 98.5% of the rainforest because it's, you know, it's kind of difficult to get to. But as soon as you turn a horizontal distance to a, a vertical depth, I think psychologically everything changes. Uh, and you think about what, what is 11 kilometres underwater? And, and when you think about that, it's frightening. So then I worked out, so what else is 11 kilometres? Like if you took that depth and turned it 90 degrees into the horizontal, it's only half the distance of Manhattan. Right? It doesn't seem that deep anymore. And interestingly, if you turn it up, you know, 11 kilometres straight up, well, you're in another extreme environment that has traditionally been feared for a long time. Well, that's to say 36,000 feet down is horrendous underwater, but up is what people regularly fly at. It's not that weird anymore. So it is a psychological thing. It's not a genuine issue. No, it's only not an, an issue if you have the technology. And, you know, that's what we've kind of lacked up until now. There are just sporadic, infrequent, occasional vehicles like what, you know, what Don Walsh and Jacques Picard used and since then there's literally been a handful of vehicles that could do it but now i think with the you know these new vehicles that that are just being sort of prototyped and you know now developed 
I think is going to be a huge change in humanity's understanding of what is possible. I could talk about this stuff all day. I think it's fascinating. It makes so much sense when I think back of all these conversations I've had with people. And you think it all comes back to this. This is not something on the fringes of, of exploration of the deep sea. This is something which is at the core of it. Brilliant. All right, Glenn, it's nice to speak to you. Thinking on that same subject, this and some of the topics we've discussed already is kind of coming to a natural conclusion. I think we've covered quite a lot of different aspects of this, but where all this stemmed from was a meeting we went to a couple of years back now in the Royal Society, and there was a whole bunch of scientists there, all deep sea related. And what struck me was the number of people who either mentioned or actually had a slide that said something like along the lines of, why don't people care about the deep sea? And it was never really discussed. How it came across was more like scientists saying, well, we care, so why don't you? Which I don't think really works. Or we're telling you this is important, so why aren't you listening? And I think it's maybe to take a step back and try and understand what underpins that lack of interest in something where, in reality, people will never engage with. So it is an interesting subject. So again, meeting Glenn and talking about it more from a sort of human fear perspective really, really brought that to the surface. It all stems from the fact we are air-breathing, visually-orientated animals. You know, historically, through most of our time on this planet, we've had an inherent fear of the dark called nyctophobia or scotophobia. There you go. I looked that up. But the fear of deep water is thalassophobia, right? And fear of deep water seems a fairly natural thing for an air-breathing mammal because it's not an environment in which you're going to survive very long. And when you think about the fear of deep water and fear of the dark, and you think of commonly used phrases like deepest, darkest fears. Can I offer an interjection there? We can drown just fine in a few feet of water. I find it interesting that we are so specifically afraid of deep water. It's because there's no escape. Once you're in deep water, you're dead. If you're in shallow water, there's a chance you can get to the surface. The air is only a breath away. Right. It's it's a lack of hope. Yeah. And remember, the shallow water gave us food and navigation across you know island to island and so on and so on. It gave us all sorts of really interesting things, which were beneficial. But the deep water bit didn't. I think when humans are placed into or are imagining these types of environments, the imagination starts to take over because they're not places you'd normally find yourself. It's not places that we've evolved to adapt to. It's something we've evolved to stay away from. So especially when you've got physical evidences lacking. So if we're not showing people how the world works uh, and how benign it might be or how interesting it might be, that imagination fills that void. And that's where you come into all these scary fish and all the rest of it and, and everybody's subconsciously maintaining this sort of reluctance or fear of, of deep and dark water. So much so that it's it's archetypal, which means human cultures since the dawn of time have all tended to have imagined their own deep sea monster. There are deep sea monsters from the Welsh, the Irish, there's loads from the Greeks, there's ones from Finland, Norway, Japanese ones, there's ones in Hebrew cultures, Hindu, Congolese, Inuit, Slavic, Icelandic, Celtic, Polynesian, Mesopotamian, Peruvian. With no cultural exchange. Yeah, there were times where these cultures never met each other, yet they all had their own deep sea monster. It's making that transition from what seems like a bizarre almost enigmatic fantasy to science fact is an interesting one. So if you think about the days of the HMS Challenger expedition in the 1870s, within the lifetime of that crew, who were going around essentially trying to work out whether you could lay subsea cables across oceans and they were laid the, the, the groundwork for uh, mapping the oceans in three dimensions, they really kind of launched deep sea biology as a thing. In their lifetime, there was a common belief that the increasing water density with depth would result in submerged or sunken objects finding neutral buoyancy at different points. So you would end up with a layer of skeletons of dead sailors and you go down a bit deeper and you'd find all the anchors and the shot and the cannonballs and they, and they believed that the only thing that was heavy enough to get to the deepest point would be gold which is odd because it's gold's not that heavy in the grand scheme of things but and that's a horrific image that's a really scary image of just these 
these ghost ships sailing the oceans at neutral buoyancy. Yeah, but then it comes from how this information is, is delivered to the masses. So even at that time, the idea that the deep sea was a physically unobtainable and inaccessible space was almost promoted by Jules Verne in 1870 when he wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He had sunken ships floating in the deep pelagic. And, you know, if no one's got anything to counteract that with, then people just go, oh, wow, wow, deep sea's weird, isn't it? It's that notion that the deep contains monsters, I think, is so culturally pervasive that psychologists and mythologists and psychiatrists and neuroscientists have researched that. But then go back to the wording in terms of phrases and, and sentiments that we use every day. If you think about where the deep sea fits into that, it becomes quite interesting as well. When you think about things like heaven is always being up and hell is always down, right? We don't necessarily talk about the celestial bodies as being something horrifying in the way we do talk about the deep sea. In fact, we can almost celebrate space exploration. But the, the forces are just as destructive. Yeah. They're, they tear you apart just yeah. as quickly. And then if you think about the wording we use for things like deteriorating mental health or experiencing difficult or bad times you, you you're describing them as being you know you're feeling down or your rock bottom or again your deepest darkest fears but when your things are good and happiness and everyone's back in the game again you talk about being on top of the world or high as a kite or on cloud nine and things are looking up so you have that directional subconscious that down is bad and up is good and it probably doesn't help that some of the wording we use in deep sea kind of lends itself to that. For example, you know, when we talk about depths of 3,000 to 6,000 metres, you're using the word abyssal. When you talk about depths greater than 6,000 metres, you're talking about hadal, which abyssal means a deeper, seemingly bottomless chasm. And hadal is derived from Hades, which is the lord and kingdom of the underworld where souls go after death in Greek mythology. You know, so, you, you know, we're already laying that down and saying this is a horrible place. And then we've got to get up there and get make people care about it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we could rename the hadal zone lovey-dovey la-la land, something a bit more positive. But anyway, so yeah, you had, a, you had a thought there about life and death and this whole positive and negative with distance from the surface. Yeah, I, this one is almost a little bit based in truth, but I think it's still very much a human bias. So I think in the in the shallow surface waters, you know, they're bathed in sunlight. It is growth and it is production and it is new life and it is birth. And then we do have this idea, and, it, and it's, it's true to, to quite a solid extent, that things die and there is a, a rain of corpses and of waste and of filth. I think it's part life and death, part clean and, and dirty. And then these carcasses rain down. So there's at the bottom, there's an ooze and there are animals that are sort of scavengers and, and starving and disgusting in themselves. So this whole idea that there's a certain amount of belief within the populace about what the deep sea is and how it functions and whether we should care about it or not. And there's obviously the, the opposite, which probably comes from the scientists and conservationists and so on who are saying, you know, this is something we should really care about, this is something we should do. But then we have to look in the middle. Well, how are they forming that opinion? That's what matters. And then you look at where do they get their information from? Okay, so this is like epistemology. Where, where, where are you getting your information from? Not everyone goes to university and studies deep sea science, right? They're getting it from somewhere. So let's have a look at Blue Planet 2, all right? So we're in no way picking on Blue Planet 2 in any way, shape or form. I think it's it's worth just analysing the wording they use in the Deep Sea episodes compared to the other episodes. I managed to get a transcription of this, which was really interesting. We're starting off by saying we know more about a lifeless rock floating in a vacuum than we know about the Deep Sea, so we, we, we've been through that. But what's interesting is that it, it uses phrases like what secrets lie beneath, okay? So it's making it mysterious. It says to, quote, enter an unforgiving world and an alien environment, and it describes it as a sea of eternal gloom. 
and perpetual darkness, a big black void inhabited by strange creatures where in this blackness creatures live beyond the normal rules of time. Those are all direct quotes from Blue Planet 2. And you're like, all right, well, I don't care about that place. <laughs> Sounds awful. It doesn't sound like something people would want to experience or should really care about in their daily lives. But it does sound like really good entertainment. That's, I guess that's the difference, right? Yeah, you don't turn off. So we analyse some of those words. You know, you've got gloom that means partial or total darkness and it could be a state of depression or despondency and eternal, of course, is without end. The definitions of alien can mean anything from foreign country to something unfamiliar or disturbing or a hypothetical creature from another world. It's the other. And this is a natural history documentary trying to teach you about the world by telling you it's otherworldly. So this leads people to infer that the largest living space on the planet is an unfamiliar, miserable, unforgiving and off-world environment. So then how do we then expect people to apply this in the quest for an intimate relationship with the deep sea and to develop a wanting of stewardship for the most important habitat on the planet? It's not being sold very well. That's what it comes down to. It's really bad PR. And we can go back to some of these, these, these other statements. It doesn't end there. Those are the sort of more mystical and, and weirdness it's trying to apply to deep sea. But there's other things which are interesting things to pick apart. It's this repeated mention of surprises. For example, when it describes the depth beyond the photic zone, the narrator reports that incredibly there is life there. And when describing the polar environments, he says one might expect that the waters would be truly barren. Okay, but in both instances, we've known the contrary for decades, if not 100 years. But we're still laying that idea down that wow i can't believe anything actually lives here i said well we've known for like a hundred years so when they come into our little ethereal snailfish tom remember that i remember that fellow well that was a good day that got in there so we're quite pleased with that but then he said no one imagined an animal as complex as the fish could ever exist in such extreme pressures we've known that there's been hadal fish now for 113 years 113 years we've known this fish really super deep and we're still punting this idea that oh that shouldn't be there oh don't like that and that's what i find quite weird so when are we going to stop saying we don't know this? And when are we going to stop saying that we're surprised by this? So the subtext is basically that you thought that nothing could survive here, right? Hence the content is designed to satisfy the audience's preconceptions rather than challenging them or informing them. And if you want to move on and change people's perception of this, you have to challenge them. You have to re-inform them and not just tell them what they want to hear. So no other episode emphasizes how much we don't know about a subject. It never talks about how much we didn't know about dolphins or manta rays 100 years ago. It's just frustrating when you hear a bunch of deep sea scientists in the room who can't seem to understand why no one cares. And then they sort of applaud how amazing the deep sea episode was, where the reason why nobody cares is things like that episode, because it's great entertainment for entertainment for, for a night over a couple of beers. But then it doesn't make you go out and go, right, Alan, I need to, I need to save this place. You just think, ooh, spooky. And that concludes this pressurized version of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to go into some more detail, you can find the full episode in the feed. Just match the episode numbers. We'll deep see you next time, and I abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone.